You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 17. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Henri Niakarundi, the CEO of A-Red Group. You can connect with him at Henri Niakarundi on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and at his website, www.henriniakarundi.com. Henri grew up in Burundi to Rwandese parents. A self-described indifferent and rebellious student, he was expelled twice from high school. Henri only stumbled upon the world of entrepreneurship after he moved to the U.S. for university. He launched several businesses, which all failed, before he set up a successful trucking business. But burnout from the trucking business and reeling from the 2008 financial crisis, Henri packed his bags and returned to Africa. He moved to Rwanda to test some market for a solar-powered kiosk, which would be used for charging phones and became the core product of A-Red Group. The kiosk was a hit and has gone through multiple iterations to adapt to its bottom-of-the-pyramid customer base. A-Red Group sells multiple services on the kiosks, providing internet connectivity, collecting data for NGO and corporate partners, in addition to offering its mainstay service of phone charging. Because, as Henri stresses in our conversation... When you're targeting customers with limited disposable income, you need multiple revenue streams. A-Red Group has won the Siemens Empowerment Award, Africa Forum 100 Innovation for Sustainable Development Award, and the Sife Social Entrepreneurship Award. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Henri, who is a charismatic thought leader in developing a social impact business for bottom-of-the-pyramid customers. And without further ado... Here's my conversation with Henri Niakarundi. Henri, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It is great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Victoria. Henri, you are Rwandan, but you grew up in Burundi due to the political instability that was in Rwanda at the time. So I'd love to know, can you tell us a story that typified your formative years, maybe from the ages of 10 to 15, when you were growing up in Burundi? Actually, I, I never lived in Rwanda. Uh, so my mom actually was left uh, Rwanda at an early age and was a refugee in Burundi. So I was born in Kenya, but I briefly uh, stayed there for less than a few months. And then uh, I moved to Burundi and I grew up in Burundi till I, w I was the age of 19. So I never knew that I was running until I was a teenager, till I was 13 years old. Uh, I always thought I was uh, Burundian. So, and and uh, the conversation uh, came about when the RPF, which at that time was a rebel group coming back to Rwanda, and then my mom sat us down and explained to us a little bit about 
uh, backgrounds. But until then, I always thought I was Burundian. I grew up there. All my friends was from there. So that's pretty much my youth story. Wow. Well, that's fascinating that you didn't know that you were, yeah, you were Rwandese until your mother sat you down when you were 15. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, she, she just gave us a brief of what was happening. I mean, she was listening to the news of the progress of uh, how the rebel was moving. So she sat us down. And, uh, and at that time, I mean, we, we were not the traditional refugees, as you call it. We were living in an urban setting. I went to private school all my life. So she was well settled. My, my dad was well settled. My dad was an engineer. So I'm, I'm not the traditional refugee story. I mean, I, I never grew up in camps. Uh, I had a, a very great childhood. I can't really complain. And you went to the French school, right? The Lycée Francais in Bujumbura. Exactly. Uh, from kindergarten all the way to my last year, which uh, is a private school in Burundi. And uh, yeah, all my life I went there. Well, and I thought it was interesting because later of the political unrest in Burundi, your parents sent you to the U.S. to study university at Georgia State University. I'm kind of curious, you know, being a native French speaker, why didn't you study in France? Like, why did they choose to send you to the U.S.? It's a very good question. So what happened when I finished my baccalaureate, which is a final test in high school, 94, that's when the war uh, started in Burundi, but it, it really got bad in 95, 96. And I was supposed actually to go to France. That was the initial plan. But then uh, the family we were supposed to go to, me and my sister, unfortunately, it didn't work out. So my mom had a younger sister in Atlanta, and uh, my mom changed her plan. And she talked to her sister and asked her sister if it was okay for us to come, for me to continue my study and for my sister also to continue high school, then maybe university. That's how I started. And next thing you know, uh, my mom told us we're going to Atlanta. And I was not complaining because the States at that time, you know, I was a big basketball player while I'm still at. So going to the state was a blessing in disguise. I, I thought at the time. Okay. And you studied computer science. And what sparked your interest in computer science? You know, I was not an academic. And I, I like to be totally honest about that. I was never an academic in school, high school. I failed my last year of high school. I had to repeat that year. The only two classes I was very good at was sports and math. I was very good in math and um, very good in sports. Everything else was really not interesting to me. So I, when I got to college, uh, university, at that time, computer science was getting very popular. And one of the the aspect of computer science, you have to be good in math. And my, one of my best friends at the time was also, I met in Georgia State, his name was Joseph, was doing his master, so he was a little bit older than me, was telling me this is the way to go. So I never really put any thought in this. I just went with the flow and talking to a few people, then I picked computer science. Yeah, because not everyone is cut out to love academics. Well, I mean, intelligence comes in a lot of different forms, but why were you disinterested in school? Did you find it boring? You know, I never believed that school was for me. It was, uh, you know, you, you study subjects that don't necessarily uh, interested. Um, I always knew for a very young age that business was the way for me. Entrepreneurship was the way for me. But unfortunately, I come from a family where Education, especially academic education, is the way to go to be successful. But for me, 
I always had a, a an interest in, in entrepreneurship, but I didn't know if entrepreneurship was the right way to go because no one around me when I was in Burundi was making a career out of entrepreneurship. It's when I got to the States that I, I discovered that you can make a career out of entrepreneurship. And that what interests me. I always love big challenges. I always love to be in control of my own destiny. I never liked to be told what to do, which was really what school was. You are given a subject, you are told uh, what to, to study, and I never liked that. Uh, but, you know, I never really, I thought I had a, a problem until I got to the States. I really thought I was the problem because I never understood why I never fit into the academics. Yeah. And the French high school system or the French education system can have really like a rote memorization aspect to it. And at least this is kind of what I've heard anecdotally in Ivory Coast is that it's a lot of the teacher, it's kind of the chalk and talk, the teacher writing something down and you repeating it. So you're right. It's really like hierarchical and not really encouraging independent thought or analytical thinking. Oh, yeah. The curriculum is set. The teacher tells you what to do and you just follow. They don't teach you to be a leader. You just taught to be a follower. That's how it was structured, at least on my time. I mean, I'm sure it hasn't changed that much now, but it, it was very, uh, extremely boring for sure. But it was not challenging mentally for me. And you couldn't even pick the subject. It was very limited subjects. You could pick uh, science, economics, or literature, which was somewhat very limited to what the students would like to do. You know, it was a time of very, a lot of confusion for me because I, I knew something was wrong, but I, I, I kept thinking maybe it's me that is wrong, you know, because I kept trying to go against the system and my parents, the, the school system was telling me that, no, that's the way to go. And I, I did a lot of, I'll tell you a little story. I mean, I, I got kicked out of high school twice in my lifetime because I, I was very rebellious, you know, so the way I used to react <laughs> of things, I used to just do dumb stuff. I don't know. I mean, maybe to get recognized, maybe to be noticed, I don't know. So I was very rebellious for a long time. So what did you do to get kicked out of school twice? You know, it was so bad that every time there was something bad happening in school, I was the, the first guy they, they used to, uh, they used to the, the headmaster used to call it. But the first time, um, what did I do? Um, I destroy some, some, you know, the board, they have boards in most school and they put some papers. Right, like a, a cork board. Yeah, yeah, the announcement board outside of school. So one day I came in, I just destroyed the board. I was with a bunch of friends. <laughs> and then one of the teachers saw me and, and of course, uh, told, uh, told on me and I got kicked out for, I think, a day. The second time, don't remember, I, I broke a window. I don't remember why. I was very young, and I got stuck for three days. You know, just stuff like this. Uh, you know, of course, my mom was really, really pissed, and, uh, to say the least. When you were in the U.S., what was your first experience with entrepreneurship that made you think of, oh, whoa, you know, maybe I can do this as a career? You know, it was gradual. Of course, the states for most of us, or, or most of my, I would call it click from high school, that was a dream. You know, I was a huge basketball fan. I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. So uh, we always dreamt to go to the States, um, maybe on vacation or, or just. So when I found out I was going to school there, it was great. My, my first 
encounter with entrepreneurship, I used to watch a lot of TV back then, and uh, it got worse in the States. And I used to watch TV all the way till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. And from midnight in the States, there's a lot of infomercial. You know those infomercial that uh, tell right. you about um, if you join this business, you can make X amount in 30, 40 days. Of course, looking back now, it was a lot of uh, dream selling, but still, it was very amazing to me how, wow, uh, you know, they were actually promoting this type of uh, structural business. And then also, I came across multi-level marketing in college there. So they were promoting a lot in my uh, university, the, some different companies. So, And that's what I started doing, uh, sales and multi-level uh, marketing. And again, no, I mean, the organization I've joined, they have training program. They were teaching us about how entrepreneurship can be a career. So it really shifted my mindset. And I remember it took about a year to really get into that uh, mindset. And uh, and I remember talking to my mom heavily about it. Be like, I tried to quit uh, college a few times to do this, to do business full time. How many times? I, I would say at least three, four times. I, it, was a, <laughs> it was always the same conversation. You know, I called my mom. I was like, Mom, uh, why? Because, you know, we were out of states. You know, you were international students. So so school fees then was like 10000 a year. So I was, I was telling my mom, I was like, listen, Mom, um, why spend all this money? I don't like what I'm doing. Just give me that money and I can do business. And, of course, it never went well. You know, it was a lot of school, right. a lot of hang-ups and all. But I tried a few times. Then the last time my mom told me, listen, if you quit school, I'll never talk to you again. That was it. I was like, okay, let me just finish this. Uh, and your your first business was a trucking business, correct? That you were running in the U.S. and Burundi, if I'm not mistaken. No, the trucking came much later. It was actually the first successful business. Uh, ah, yes, okay. I, I had a lot of failure in between. I did a lot of business in the States. I just, I just didn't make any money or make a little money, but... That was the trucking business was the, the my, my my first successful business. Oh well, let's um. But Henri, I want to I want to jump back because you're you're skating over some interesting details here. Um, what were these kind of businesses that you tried on the U.S. that didn't work? Oh man, um, I was uh, like I said, I was a salesman most of the time, so I worked on uh, multi level marketing, uh, selling water filtration system. That was that didn't work out, even though that's the company I really change my mindset really and educated me about entrepreneurship i didn't make any money on that then i when cell phone came out there was a lot of businesses that were licensing for you to to uh sales uh subscription for 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 clients i did that for like two years but that didn't work out another business is i got into uh natural health products in my early days and that's why uh it also educated me about what we put in our body and all those things. So I got heavy into natural health. So I was doing sales about that also. I did that for, for at least four or five years. That didn't work out. Financially, I didn't make any money. But again, it educated me in a lot of stuff. So I, I did at least four or five different businesses. Some lasted six months. Some lasted a few years. And while I was doing those, of course, I had to get a job to survive. But um, it, it didn't work out for me. So um until I got into trucking. Okay, but it sounds like you really learned how to hustle. Well, hustling is what I do best, man. And that's why I tell people. <laughs> well, it's an indisposable skill, yeah. Man, if you don't know how to hustle, you can't survive in this way. You usually can't survive as a business. 
And business is not just about building the business, but you need to build the brand. You need to be a hustler to build your brand, your personal brand, and uh, your, your company brand. All that is hustling, man. Networking, finding a way in into a, a, an investment deal and all those things. To me, that hustle to me is, is the number one skill set anyone has to learn. And even if you have a job, you need to hustle to move up in that job. You need to, to find ways, uh, how can you get promoted and all. I love the art of hustling, man. That's really what I, I was very good at. Right. No, it's, um, again, it's just indisposable, you know, because like you said, it's kind of always asking yourself, well, how can you move the needle? How can you improve the business? Who do you need to meet? Um, it, it, it's really that at the end of the day, hustling. No, yeah, I mean, it's it's the key because hustling, what, what hustling teach you, number one, the most important lesson I learned as a hustler is to be a problem-solving person. Uh, it, it forces you to solve problems because one thing I learned about being a, 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 an entrepreneur or be studying all those sales jobs and all, every day you encounter challenges and, and issues you need to solve. How do you, how do you reach your quota? How do you make sales? How do you uh, reach your customer? Every day you wake up, it's a problem you need to solve. And it forces you where it forces you to, to become a problem solving uh, a, a guy and develop that skill set to the point where if you do it long enough, it becomes a second nature. And, and when you get to that level, then no problem. You look at problem different. A lot of people are, 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 I know they look at problem as a, a ending. Uh, oh man, this is a, this is tough. This is really, you know, difficult. I don't know what I'm going to do. But when you're a hustler, really live that hustle life. Uh, of solving problem, then all you do is, is you know, when a problem comes, you don't even have time to think about the problem. Automatically, your brain is wired to find a solution to that problem. I love that. And tell us, Henri, about the, the trucking business. Kind of what what lessons did you learn from that first successful business of yours? Man, uh, trucking was a very, very interesting story. Well, I won't get too much in detail, but I started trucking by accident. I was working at uh, FedEx Kinko's back then, and, and I was in charge of uh, the third shift schedule. I was working by myself on third shift from 10, 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. And this guy come in one day, and uh, he's a truck driver, and uh, he needs to print his uh, his pay stub, his, uh, his paycheck. And and when I went to copy it for him, I uh, looked at of course, I looked at the amount, and I started striking the conversation with him and be like, Man, what do you do? And all those things. And then he started talking to me about, yeah, I'm a truck driver. This is what I make and all that. And next thing you know, I started doing research. And three months later, I registered my company and, and got my license to start a trucking company. Bought my first truck, bought a trailer, and I was in business. Now, the business, obviously, like most of my businesses, for the first two years, I was losing a lot of money. Thank God I had some savings. I had bought a house back then, so I had a chance to refinance that house and get some equity out. That's how I financed all this uh, business, uh, all the trucking business uh, initial capital. For two years, I was losing money because obviously I didn't do the right research. I was burning through cash, not understanding what I, what the problem was. I didn't understand that, hey, there's maintenance costs. I need to factor in fuel, actually fuel is 50% of your cost in trucking. Fuel and the driver, because I was not driving the equipment, I was hiring a driver to run the, the freights. And um, 
fuel and 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 the driver was taking seventy to eighty percent of my uh, revenue, and I was losing money. I was not making any money. I was getting frustrated. But at that point, I was what? I was around twenty six, twenty seven. At that point, I was like, okay, this is it for me. I can't continue losing into this business uh, venture. I need to make it work. I knew that trucking had to work, not only uh, to prove to my family and all that entrepreneurship is really my dream, is, is the way to go for me. Because till then, till that moment, I was failing at mostly everything. And my mom was getting tired of backing me up financially. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Money at the time, I had to pay mortgage uh, or, or rent. You know, she was tired. And I don't blame her. I mean, looking back, every, every time... And she used to tell me every time I get a call from you, it's it's a problem. You know, it's a money issue. You know, get a job <laughs> or do something. You know, and I and I, I was like, okay, trucking has to work. And I got lucky enough to come across a company, a trucking company that was extremely successful. Because in my mind, it was like, okay, somewhere, somehow, is a tr- if there's a trucking company making money, I can make money also. I can be profitable. I just need to learn what business model they're using that I'm not using. And I came across uh, this company, and uh, and it, it changed the game for me. Uh, I, and when I adapted their six, uh, the, the business model, six months later, I was profitable. And what was the business model? The business model was you don't own your equipment. You hire truck drivers that already have their own equipment. And you just dispatch them on freight. Yes, you earn less, you earn a percentage of that freight, but you don't have the extra cost of maintenance, driver uh, cost, and all those extra costs. But of course, they use your license because you need a license to operate a trucking company. And there's over a million truck drivers that own their own equipment in, in, in the States. But most of them don't have a license to operate because to get a license, it requires it's it's a it's a big requirement, you know. Background check. There's a cost to it. Um, uh, you 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 highly audit it, and most truck drivers don't want to deal with that. So they rather work with a a company that already has that license and just dispatch them, and then they get paid without having to deal with all the headache of of having a license. So I sold my 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 truck and I start hiring uh, drivers that had uh, their own equipment, and at one point I had ten. We call them owner operator. They own and operate their own vehicle. Uh, at some point, my high, at my peak, I had ten of them, and um, yeah, and I was highly profitable. Uh, you know, because I, I had eliminated my expenses, and I was just earning a percentage of the freight. And and mind you, I, I was doing, I was running this whole operation by myself, from dispatch to finding freights to payment to all those things, all by myself. So. It was very interesting, but it was extremely, extremely stressful. Ah, uh, okay. And and is that why you chose to ultimately let the business go? Yeah, I was having health issues. My stress level was so high. My doctor told me that uh, if I don't if I don't stop my lifestyle of uh, of this job, then I, I might catch a heart attack or something. So um, that's why. Oh I, wow! That was really, really bad at some point. I was I was not sleeping anymore. So I'll give you some example. You know, most truck drivers break down at night. I don't know why. I never did a market research on that, but <laughs> okay, they always break down at night for some reason. 
our truck drivers are stealing freight, our truck drivers on drugs, on meth, um, where cops call you and say, hey, uh, we just find this guy in the middle of the road. Uh, it, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, it was crazy. It was just getting out of control. And what I should have done, looking back, I should have got a staff. I, I just um, I just didn't know better back then. I was trying to do everything myself. And uh, right, it, it seems like you were stuck in a bootstrapping mentality, and you were running uh, everything yourself. And but you're right. I mean, that level of stress is just not worth it. No, no. Uh, that's when I made the decision. Well, I knew I was going to move back home, but I, uh, I made the decision in, in 08. And a lot of stuff happened. Huh? The business was uh, really stressful. Then in 08, uh, actually, uh, 07, 08, that's what the financial crisis really hit bad in the States. Everything, uh, fuel price went up dramatically. My, my house value dropped 50%. Um, and then I, I went home in, in 09 and 09, I made the decision, uh, that I was going to leave the States and uh, try and look for something to do back home. Okay. Well, and, and tell us a story of how you transitioned to start, uh, your current business, African Renewable Energy Distributor, A Red Group. After, so I got to the States in 96, 2009. It was already, what, 13 years there, so or eight or nine. So I was, I was getting tired. I was missing my family. I was missing my parents. And, and things were changing in the States politically. After September 11, things were not the same anymore. Immigration was becoming tougher. Uh, it was a very different regime for, for immigrants then. And, and I, start, I, I was traveling a lot, coming home once a year to visit. And I started seeing the changes. When I left... Africa. When I left Burundi, I had vouched never to come back because I never thought that that region was going to improve or something. And when I started coming back, first time I came back was in 2001. It was still very recent. But in 2009, when I came back, I, it was amazing the changes, especially in Rwanda. Rwanda had completely changed from the time last time I visited Rwanda, uh, which is 96. There was building everywhere. They had that one-stop shop registration for business. And it takes, at that time, it was taking 24 hours to register your business. Uh, there was a boom. A lot of my friends was moving back. So I was like, okay, there's something going on here. I need, I need to uh, pay attention. And what was happening in the States, what was happening in Africa, I finally realized that there was much more opportunity for me moving back home than staying in the States. And that was it for me. I, I, when I made the decision, you know, I'm a very good at making decision. I don't I don't slap around. So when I made the decision, that was it. So I came back in July 09. I'll never forget. I sat down on my desk and I, I made that decision that I was going to move back home. Now the question was, I was going to move doing what? So I look at different sector. Uh, at this time, I was like, okay, I don't want to, I want to do something innovative. I've always been passionate about technology, about something innovative. Um, even though I'm not an engineer, I've always been passionate about that. So I, I look at different areas. I look at uh, the agricultural sector and uh, the energy sector. And um, that was, uh, you know, Google Google was already existing back then. So I spent hours and hours every day researching, researching. And finally, I settled with the energy sector. And from there, I started looking at, okay, what, what are the areas I can focus on? 
uh, on the energy sector. I didn't want to do, everybody was doing import export of solar panels and battery. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to develop a, uh, innovative product. And, uh, the idea of phone charging really came about around that same time because I, I was seeing a lot of people with cell phones, but energy was a big issue. And I was like, well, I can develop a product that people can use to charge their phone on the go. Uh, while they're in the cities and marketplace and all those things. That was the initial idea, of course. And, and I hired somebody and then we shared the revenue. And, uh, that's how it started. I drew on a piece of paper the actual product, what I thought would look like, obviously, was a horrible, uh, design. And, and I moved from there. I looked for a designer, uh, and I looked for an engineer. The whole process took three years. And then as soon as the prototype was done, I bought a one-way ticket, so, you know, at that time, I had two properties. I gave away a property uh, to the bank, and then the other one I sold. I gave away what I couldn't sell, and I moved back home. Okay, so um, to go into the details of how you raised the capital to develop the prototype for the for the Solar Smart Hub, pretty much you you sold a lot of your own assets to to raise the capital. No, so. Um, trucking was, as I said, was, was highly profitable for me. So I funded the whole. Oh, okay. So this was at the same time. Okay. So I funded the whole, uh, the whole product development from the, the revenue I was making from the trucking. Okay. And again, about, I'm just interested about this prototyping, like how you went about it. So how did you enter into contact with the engineer, with the designer to, to build it out? Uh, it's called elance.com. Um, it was a, it was a website where you can find, um, what you call those, uh, people that freelance, basically freelance in any kind of, uh, industry, you know, design, engineering, you post what you need and, uh, people bid. And then if you like the bid, you start talking, negotiating, and then you move forward. So Elance was a game changer. The internet in general was a game changer for me. The internet really gave me access to information. Uh, it would have been very difficult for me to get uh, if the internet was not existing back then. So uh, everything I did it was from the internet. Obviously, also, I made a lot of mistakes, unfortunately, on the, on the process because I didn't know how to develop a product, so I, I trusted people too easily, but that's a different story. But still, I was able to move forward because of the Elance background. Ah, okay. So, what happened next? So, you developed the prototype. You moved to Rwanda to to start the business, and then what happened? Uh, hustling. That's what it's called. <laughs> what happened was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was back with a startup, but because I had so much experience, I mean executing was 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 second nature to me so it was about execution man it was just about execution execution um you know day in day out seven days a week i was just hustling hustling uh learning the market testing so the first thing i did was testing the market uh unfortunately in three months i realized that the, the initial business model i had was not going to work phone charging alone was not going to be sustainable as a business i was very when I was developing my business plan, I thought I was going to make a dollar per charge, for example. You know, I had a, let's just say I was in the States for too long, you know, because the, <laughs> the, the pricing was just not happening. Uh, the, the charging at a time, because there was other 
people were charging their phone using uh, car batteries. If they had electricity, of course, they use electricity. But in marketplace and bus stops and all that, uh, or, or in remote areas, they were using car batteries. And uh, the, the charge was 10 cents. So I couldn't go higher than that because nobody, you know, it was uh, it would be too high for the, for the average consumer. So I went back on the drawing board and uh, started learning the market, you know, because I was working on the first kiosk by myself, uh, testing everything. I mean, you know, that's, that's what I always do, you know, just get on the ground and learning, learning, learning. And, and uh, the, the business shifted quickly for me. And instead of uh, uh, just charging, I looked at the more innovative way because now it was about how to build a sustainable business. So I was like, okay, what else can I do on this kiosk? That can bring additional revenue. So I keep I kept adding more services, more services to become what it is now uh, a one-stop shop platform. We're the first and only one-stop shop platform in the market right now, where we can do not just phone charging, but we do Wi-Fi connectivity, online or offline connectivity from the kiosk. We provide digital services, airtime, mobile money, government services. So we have a mobile platform that allows the agent to sell services. But also, we collect a lot of data. So yeah, so so I shifted. It, it took me about two years to develop the right business model, and also because it was an agent type of business, I was building an agent network. Uh, for those who don't know what an agent network is, when you hire somebody to resell the services for you and you share some of that revenue. Right. Well, and that was going to be my next question. Is really integral to your business model is adopting a franchise model. So what you're saying, an agent model. And was that the idea from the very beginning or did that grow over time? No, because again, uh, when I wrote the business plan initially, I, I didn't do no market research. I was just writing based on what I thought was happening on the ground, based on my few vacation time and all. So, but when I got to the ground, I stopped being aware of the ecosystem. You know, agent business, for example, in Africa is nothing new. Telecoms have an agent business network. Most company, big company, build their own agent business network. I just, I just looked at that network and said, okay, how can I do it much better than and much more efficiently than those guys? Because most of the agent business in Africa is really, really basic. You, know? you have a feature phone, you have a table and an umbrella, and that's it. I was like, Let, how can I make this a much more efficient and bring an upgrade to this business? And that's what it is now. So it was about learning, looking what's out there, and doing much better than what's what's ever on the market. And distribution network is a huge, huge business in Africa, and that's what we are. It, what that's what we're doing now is, you know, I always love to 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 push the envelope. I always like to push myself and see what's out there and trying to beat the uh, the competition. And that's what it was all about, you know. And uh, I, we spent a lot of money on research and development for make to make this platform the most advanced distribution network in the market. And besides having the, the physical kiosk that's offering multiple services, is there another way that this distribution model is pushing the envelope? Well, exactly. Yes. Uh, so, for example, uh, offline, online connectivity solution is very unique. So, you know, data, uh, access to data for low-income people, which is our, our main customer. We, we only focus in rural area semi-urban area and refugee camps. So data is very expensive for low-income people. And so we, we looked at it and we said, okay, can we repackage the data 
into a, a price point that can be affordable to them. But we say, well, how can we even go further and say, bringing access to digital content offline? So meaning the user no longer needs to have access to data on his or her phone to consume certain content that we have, especially content that brings value to the user, like educational content, health content. Those are contents that we push on our pla- on our kiosk platform. So the kiosk has a router system with a memory bank. So it's like a, a mini server on each kiosk. And that's how we push the envelope. We're like, okay, we can now uh, store content within each kiosk and push it via Wi-Fi. And because it's stored on our kiosk, we can reuse that content as many times as we want at no cost to the user. Everything we build as a company is is to bring value to the end user at a very minimal or no cost to them. And having a a B2C but also a B2B business model. The only way, and that's why I always tell people for your audience that want to build a social impact business, the only way you can build sustainability in those areas is to have a multiple revenue stream. It's the only way. Companies that have one revenue stream depend a lot on subsidies. We don't. And we have multiple revenue stream opportunities on our platform. That's you know, because the margins are so small, you have to be creative on what revenue you can do. We can push advertisement on our Wi-Fi system. We have an audio system on a kiosk. We can push audio content. We can do survey on our Wi-Fi system offline, meaning now people, companies can pay us to collect data at no cost to the user because they use our Wi-Fi network to interact with, uh, with the network. So we do a lot of things now that nobody's doing. So it, it's, it's, it's good and bad also because it's a new field. So, you know, we're learning also as we go. On that note, what have you learned that has surprised you? Well, we've learned a lot. One of the things I, I really learned is that you cannot duplicate a business model when you cater to the base of the pyramid because uh, the dynamic at the base of the pyramid is different than uh, if you cater to the middle class and upper class. We've learned also that we have to spend a, a lot more time training and educating our customer base because every time you, you bring a new technology, uh, there have to be a learning curve uh, and you have to be involved in that equation uh, of that learning curve for the customer base. But also in our case, for example, because we have a micro franchise model, we have to have a very strong training program to train our micro franchisee, uh, the people that operate our kiosk. Uh, how things work, how to perform, how to provide customer service. So there's a huge learning curve that I didn't factor in uh, when I started this business. And uh, finally, um, you have to have a very strong uh, monitoring program. You know, I've, uh, one, one of the things we learned the hard way is mindset. Mindset is a big issue. You know, people have, uh, have different mindset that we have. So you have to monitor and make sure everything is working properly. And that's a human factor uh, in general. But those are the, the key the key thing we learn uh, uh, doing this business. What do you mean by having a different mindset? Again, uh, the mindset of not taking care of the equipment, the mindset of uh, training and learning and teaching about value, what the value is, long-term value. You know, what we've seen at the BOP, a lot of people have short-term focus. You know, they live or they survive day by day. They don't plan for the future. Not all of them, of course. I'm trying to generalize a little bit, but a lot of them, you know, 
So you have to teach them about value, you know, how to take care of the equipment because that's the value for them to make sure that it will allow them to generate uh, the money um, that they will need, you know, for, for, for their day-to-day life. So, so teaching them how to value uh, certain things, you know, uh, and that's a mindset issue, you know, uh, long-term thinking compared to short-term thinking. That's a mindset issue. You know, again, like I said, the BOP, most people are, are live on a day-by-day basis. They don't think about next month, next three months, next four months. So we're trying to change that mindset. So, Henri, I'd love to transition to, to focus on your thoughts more generally on entrepreneurship. And I'd love to know, what was your biggest failure as an entrepreneur, and what did you learn from it? I had several failures, but uh, what I believe now uh, about failure is not what I used to believe. I, I used to take failure very personally. I used to think failure uh, was define you as an individual or what you're capable of. Now I look at failure as an opportunity to learn from that failure uh, and, and to be a better entrepreneur, better whatever you want to uh, uh, do in life. So in my case now is my mindset has changed. So I, I embrace failure uh, because I always look for ways to learn. But some of the failures I've encountered uh, was mostly linked to uh, me not being patient. You know, I used to associate uh, entrepreneurship and success, especially success, as something that happened within six to, six to 12 because I used to watch the media or the internet and you see all those entrepreneurs going public or, or, or becoming unicorn status in less than a year. So I used to associate that as what success was. And it's the same problem young entrepreneurs today uh, are going through, you know. And I, I, it took me a long time to realize that it takes years and years of work, hard work, dedication, and day in, day out of sweat and tears to be successful. And that's one of the things I try to teach the, the, the young guys. But, you know, uh, lack of patience was one of the biggest problems I had that I had to shift. Another thing is um, I, I, I used to not do a lot of research on what business I was going to do. So I used to jump into business not really understanding or knowing the ecosystem and making a lot of mistakes along the way and, and taking those mistakes as a as a sign that I shouldn't be doing, I mean, I, I shouldn't be an entrepreneur. But uh, lastly, I would say as, um, as an entrepreneur is uh, not preparing my mind. I think 50% of the, ba- the battle as an entrepreneur, it's how tough you are um, mentally, how, how strong you are mentally, because it's so hard to be successful as an entrepreneur. If you're not tough mentally, um, most likely you, you will quit. And those are, those are the areas I had to learn and improve as I, I decided that uh, entrepreneurship was, for me, was, was going to be my career. Mm. Oh, that's great. And if, if you could take a one-year sabbatical from a Red Group and you could go anywhere else in Sub-Saharan Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? You know, um, I will go um, up country. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily go to a specific country, but I'll go uh, up country, whether it's here or um, Tanzania or Kenya. Uh, but that's mostly to really better understand the customer mindset of uh, of people in rural areas, semi-urban area. I don't necessarily like the word low-income people, but uh, those areas, because I, 
it took me a long time to understand that um, people in those areas don't consume the same way. If you had a billion dollars, which sector in Africa would you invest in? Oh, I'll definitely go into agricultural business. I think that's the biggest opportunity uh, economically and the biggest need for the, not just for the continent, but for the world. So I, I would spend um, not just agriculture, but processing, uh, bringing new technology in the agricultural sector that already been developed, but bring it in Africa. There's technology now that allow you to grow food all year round, regardless of the impact of the environment, you know, and, and also I will use at least 30, 40% of money to develop uh, agriculture in, in the desert. There's technology that China has been developing where now you can grow uh, trees and all in desert areas, which is very, very interesting. But I'll definitely be in the agricultural sector. Okay, you mean like to stop desertification? Not just desert, uh, to stop that, but to, um, for example, you can grow forests now. They're trying... They've, they've turned desert area into forests now. So really bring, yeah, basically that, that will fight desertification uh, of the area. But to show that, you know, uh, there's technology now that can solve a lot of our problems in the agricultural sector. Hmm, interesting. To, to wrap up our conversation, Henri, if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? If I have to choose one is don't quit. Never quit, no matter what. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care what you go through. I don't care how tough your environment is. I don't care if whatever the world is, 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 is putting on your shoulder, don't quit. Don't quit your dreams. You only have one life to live. You're going to die someday. I mean, that's just the reality. You don't want to live a life of regrets. So don't quit. Keep fighting. And if that truly is your dream, you need to fight for your dream. You need to fight for what you believe, no matter what. Because at some point, if you stop dreaming and you, you stop following your dreams, you will have a life of regrets. And that's the worst type of life to live. Okay, well, thank you so much, Henri, for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me and uh, hope to do that again one day. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.